if you sang that song, we committed to some pretty serious stuff. I trust when you come to worship our great God and we get to sing together that we don't ever just turn our brains off and go, I know that song, I know the tune, and, and we open our mouth and we make noise. But we are speaking, we are singing worship to God to glorify who He is, but to also every Sunday commit our allegiance to Him as Lord of our lives. And so I ask you this morning, how intentional are you building? How intentional am I building my life in Christ? Do we trust Him alone? It's important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. Thank you for loving us. God, I pray that you would examine our hearts this morning and that as we sit under your word, the message you have prepared for me to deliver to your children this morning, including myself, God, I pray that you will continue to transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Well, this morning I want us to look at the critical aspect of unity within the body of Christ. Because on mission, united we stand, but divided we fall. It's generally known and attributed that that saying comes from one of Aesop's fables, the famous Greek storyteller. And the uh, fable where that saying comes from is called the four oxen and the lion, where he tells a story of a lion that would prowl around a field where four oxen lived. And he would continually try to attack them. But every time he would get near, the oxen would turn their tail warning each other so that no matter what way the lion approached them, he faced the horns of one of them. Until one day the oxen decided to quarrel. And then they did what a lot of us do in conflict. They all went to their own corner of the field. And one by one by one, the lion attacked them until all four were gone. Thus the saying, united we stand, but divided we fall. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus affirms this reality. When he called out the Pharisees who were thinking that it was only by Beelzebul, the name that came to be used for Satan, the prince of the demons, that Jesus was able to drive out demons. And Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. You see, church family, our missional impact as Christ's witnesses who boldly proclaim the good news of the kingdom in his name will be dependent on the intentional effort each of us makes to maintain and foster the unity we enjoy in Jesus Christ. We saw last week that Satan had failed completely in his attempt to silence the witness of the church. However, as you know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, our enemy never gives up, does he? He simply changes his strategy. 
His first approach had been to attack the church from the outside, hoping that being arrested and threatened would frighten the apostles and the early believers to be quiet and to speak to no one in the name of Jesus. But when that failed, he decided to attack the church from the inside. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We will read verses 31 to chapter 5, verse 11. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Looking through this window into the life of the early church, we discover how unity is established, how it is fostered, and how it can be put at risk. The first thing I want us to note this morning is how our unity is established. Our unity is established by God. Verse 32 says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. What most of us probably haven't thought too much about as we've been studying the early church is that in a very short span of time, they had become a mega church. Today, a mega church is classified as any church that has an average of 2,000 attendees at their services. Well, in verse 4 of chapter 4, Luke records the number of men who believed were about 5,000. 
And it would not be unrealistic to assume that most of those men were also married, meaning the early church had grown from 120 people to most likely 10,000 followers. How is it possible for 10,000 people to be so unified? Anyone out there ever hated doing school projects together with other people? Put your hand up. Both of my hands are up. It was the most frustrating part of high school and university was when the prof would say, and I want you to work in a group of four. Because do you think four people who think they're the smartest can agree on how something should look? Absolutely not. And then you have those who are like, oh, I hope I'm in Calvin's group because really I don't really care that much about what my grade is like in this project. And their lack of effort is gonna affect my grade. So what ends up happening? you end up doing the whole project for the group. Hard to be unified, but here we see 10,000 people unified. And not only that, but they were from such different backgrounds. All one heart and mind in their feeling in terms of unity, but also in their contribution, their activity in unity, to keep the unity. One heart, one mind, all from different backgrounds. Remember when the gift of the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost? It says in Acts 2.5 that God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were present. There were many languages, but they heard the gospel in their language. 10,000, all the believers were united by their common faith in Christ Jesus, the gospel. And they shared this fundamental gospel in the core of their beings, their heart and their mind. Have you ever been somewhere, maybe you're in a grocery store or perhaps a waitress or a waiter is serving you and you just sense in your heart, I'm sure they're a believer. They have to be a believer. There's this, there's this sense that you have. And if you've had the privilege of being in a cross-cultural setting, maybe on a missions trip, and you attend a church, and you're worshiping with brothers and sisters who, who you don't speak their language, but yet you feel so connected. One heart, one mind. And the early church, although made up of diverse people from different lands and cultures, lived how Jesus prayed his disciples would live. Do you remember in John 17, 11, Jesus said in his prayer for his followers, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. He prayed for his disciples, knowing they would be exposed to the world's hatred, which we saw earlier in the chapter. And because he would no longer be with them physically, he asked the Father to protect them, keep them. Why? So that they may be one as we are one. That they will be united in harmony as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternally united. The strongest union of all. Christ knew their unity would be a powerful witness to the reality of who God is and the message of his love. And so through his prayer, we see that the unity that they and we enjoy is established by God the Father. Jesus prayed for that. It is not something we create. The unity we enjoy in Christ has been established by God. It's not something that we create. 
8. By God's grace, those in the early church were given the gift of faith to believe the message about Jesus Christ proclaimed by the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 36 to 41. And then repenting and placing their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, and being baptized is what united them. How many of you personally know the people who were baptized this morning? Put up your hand if you personally know them. Very few of us. But how many in your heart were rejoicing with them even though you didn't know them? Exactly. This is what the gospel does. They understood what really mattered and were fully committed to the gospel of the risen Christ, which we read in our text, with great power, the apostles continued to preach even though they were commanded not to. The Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are united in the mission of saving everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Do you see? It is God who establishes our unity. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings saved people together like we are this morning, and the unity we enjoy in Christ has been provided by God who made us spiritually alive through the work of the Holy Spirit. What we enjoy is God-given spiritual unity. It's not organizational uniformity. It is spiritual. It is supernatural. As one of the authors that I was reading this week said, our strongest source of unity isn't our common affinities. It's our gospel identity. Even though you might be totally different than me, even though we might not even enjoy doing the same things together, there is a bond, there is a unity because of our identity with Jesus Christ. And the further we drift away from this ultimate unifier, the further we get away from the kind of countercultural, world-impacting, Christ-exalting unity that Luke was recording for Theophilus to see and understand. So what should we do? Celebrate and treasure the God-given spiritual unity we share in Jesus Christ. Celebrate and treasure it. As Paul writes, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 and 13, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Celebrate, treasure the God-given spiritual unity we share in Jesus Christ. That's why before service, there should be, it should sound like a market. I've been to the market in Istanbul, Turkey. This place should sound like the market in Istanbul. It should be a struggle for the pastor to say, okay, it's time to start church. Because everybody's so excited celebrating the unity we share. Point number two. We are to foster the unity we have received. Remember, we didn't create this. We received it. So we are to foster the unity we have received. Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort, every effort. How much effort are we making to foster the unity that we enjoy? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, because the unity we enjoy flows from the generosity of the Father who gave us His Son, our unity then is to be marked by personal generosity manifested in self-giving love, which reflects what? The character of God himself, who gave us the unity we enjoy. 
And so because the believers were one in heart and mind, they willingly made personal sacrifices for one another and for the glory of God. Listen, our common gospel identity has to shape our perspective of what we own and how we share with others. Look at verse 32, the second half. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. When you realize something is not your own, two things happen. First of all, you're probably going to take care of that thing more than you would if you did own it, right? Secondly, you realize the blessing of using it is only temporary. So Lord willing, later today, I'm going to head three hours north, and it's harvest season at my farm. But we don't have any crops. But the Lord has placed lots of nice venison on the farm. So I'm heading up there. I hunt with my neighbors cousins. They're not believers. I am very blessed and thankful for the little four-tracks Honda four-wheeler I have that Phil Powers found for me on an auction a number of years ago. It's a great little bike. There's no power steering. There's no heated seating. It's going to be cold this week up there, all right? And uh, for some reason, it's burning oil now that it's smoking out the back. I don't know if you remember Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's just visualized me this week. So there's about 11 of us that hunt together and we all head off in the morning. They have graciously now said, Calvin, you're at the back. Because we don't want to breathe that anymore. But every now and then my cousin will say, oh, Calvin, just take my big Can-Am four-wheeler. Oh. It's like a stinking lazy boy chair going through the woods. <laughs> so comfortable automatic, no more doing this the whole day, automatic, heated handle grips, <laughs> power steering. I can go like this and it actually turns the way I want it to go. My bike, I'm like, come on, come on, come on. But I take care of Paul's bike because it's not mine. And I realize the blessing of it and using it is very temporarily. You know, as I read this week, it amazed me how quickly the early church realized that what they possessed was not their own. They held their possessions loosely ready at any time to give them up in order to help someone in need. What amazes me about my unbelieving cousins and friends I hunt with, they're some of the most generous guys in the world. And I feel convicted because I have a hard time letting go of some of my things to lend them to someone knowing I'm not sure they're going to return in the same way. But just as we were all in great need, dead in our trespasses and sin, God gave. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Spirit-filled unity is fostered through sacrificial generosity, which is a result of God's grace working in us. We read that. The grace of God was working powerfully in the early believers, so much so that there was no one who had need. And did you note how wide-reaching nature, the, the nature of the church's generosity was? Who shared? Everyone. When did they share? Whenever someone had need. What did they share? Everything. Who, when, and what? Everyone, whenever someone had need, everything. Yes, their unity was established by God, but it was fostered by a deep conviction to share. When a brother or sister had a need, those who could felt compelled to meet it based on love and generosity they had received from God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? Faith, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. What about the warning in 1 John 3.17? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity in them, listen, how can the love of God be in that person? How did we know the love of God was in the early church? It was so evident by their generosity. And the type of unity displayed was not just a relinquishing of their possessions, no one claimed that they were their own, but it also included a genuine concern for one another, as we saw in verse 34 and 35. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had need. Luke is not describing living in a commune where money is pooled and distributed equally among everyone. No, he is recording for Theophilus the spirit-filled culture of generosity that existed in the early church. They were a group of generous people with a shared identity in Christ who genuinely cared for one another. And those who had need, those needs were met. You see, when the Holy Spirit is at work, giving becomes a blessing, not a burden. They were recipients of undeserved favor from God. And when God's grace is at work, people maintain unity through generosity. If you struggle to give sacrificially to the advancement of the mission of the gospel, perhaps you do not fully yet understand and appreciate the gospel you have received. But one person did, and Luke recorded it. Verse 36, his name was Joseph. Luke had great respect for Joseph. In fact, he mentions him 25 times in Acts. As we read, he was a member of the priestly tribe of Levites, originally from Cyprus, the third largest island in the Mediterranean. And the apostles had given him the name Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, because that best described his life and ministry. Here's the question that came to my heart and mind as I got to this part of the passage. If other believers were to look at my life and give me a nickname based on their impressions, what would it be? For what are you known? For what am I known? Barnabas, son of encouragement. And here Luke draws to, uh, our attention to his generosity as an example of what it means to be spirit-filled, generous person. Like others, Barnabas did not have to sell his field. He didn't have to bring the proceeds to the apostles, but he chose to do just that, demonstrating he loved Jesus. He loved his spiritual brothers and sisters, and he loved to see the mission of the gospel of the resurrected Christ advance more than his stuff. And the attitude with which he gave the money for the sale of his field says a lot. Luke simply records he brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. What does that display? Submission to the authority that God had placed in the early church at that time. Humility and trust. He did not want credit for how it was used. He was not interested in drawing attention to himself. 
His main concerns were bringing glory to God, fostering unity within the church through sacrificially giving so that those who have need would have and that the mission of the gospel would advance. Are you a contributor or are you a consumer? Am I a contributor or am I simply a consumer? Can I encourage all of us to contribute generously to fostering unity that we enjoy in Christ? Don't simply be a consumer of the blessing of the unity you enjoy in Jesus Christ. Be a contributor. Contribute generously to fostering the unity we enjoy because it significantly impacts our witness We saw that earlier in Acts chapter 2 when Luke was talking about how they had everything in common and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. What about in John chapter 13 and verse 35? Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So fostering our unity that we enjoy in Christ impacts our witness. I remember uh, the last church my father planted in Zimbabwe was in the capital city of Harare and it was an incredible it used to be a government taxation building that had gone up for sale and the Lord put it on my dad's heart that's where I want this church to be planted every bus in the city stopped at its front door it was the main terminal for all the buses in the city and my dad by faith went in said we want to purchase the building they told him okay in four weeks if you have a million dollars we'll hold it for you Wow. And before you can even get the chance to raise $4 million, we need, and I think it was $30,000 put down right now to secure that we won't let anyone else bid on this building. And there was a gentleman named Ingmar Felt. He was a Swedish businessman who ran a photocopy business in the city. And he came to my dad and he said, I want to sign a check right now to hold the building for us. He signed a check. We, by faith, my dad came to Canada By God's grace, he went back with a million dollars. By God's grace, the six people in my family, Ingmar and Trish Felt, planted upper room ministries in our living room at home. I was an usher, and I was only in like grade nine. It was exciting. That's where upper room ministry started. This morning, I've been in touch with my friends there this week. This morning, there was already 1,200 people who met in upper room ministries, downtown Harare, Zimbabwe, in two services this morning. Do you see how generosity fosters unity and the advancement of the kingdom? Because of what Ingmar Felt did, the brothers and sisters who are worshiping, they don't even know who he is, but that wasn't the issue. He wanted to see the gospel of Jesus Christ reach the lost people in that city. So contribute generously. And finally, we are to personally avoid putting our unity at risk. One of the greatest threats to our unity is personal hypocrisy. Sadly, that's one of the most common accusations unbelievers have of the church, isn't it? You've heard it. It's an excuse that they use. The church is full of hypocrites. George MacDonald, talking about hypocrisy, said it very well. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. And Luke, being an accurate historian, not only, recorded the not, not only recorded the good aspects of the early church, 
but he also faithfully recorded the not-so-good aspects of the early church. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, immediately following, immediately following the God-honoring and inspiring story of Barnabas, contributing to fostering the unity in the church, Luke records the tragic story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who like Barnabas sold a piece of property, but unlike Barnabas put their own interests ahead of the unity and the mission of God, even though they made it look like they were all in. Look at verse 1 and 2, chapter 5. Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept part of the money for himself. But then he went and did exactly what Barnabas had done. Bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Like Barnabas, they were not forced to sell their field. They were not forced to give the proceeds once the property was sold. Doing both of those things was totally volunteer. So what was the problem? Ananias pretended to give more than he actually had. Hypocrisy. He kept some of the proceeds even though he made it appear he had given it all. His outward sin, being deceitful about how much they were giving to the church, was bad. But the deeper tragedy of his sin was the spiritual hypocrisy in his heart, which he displayed based on his evil desires. Look at verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. What made you think of doing such a thing? Have you ever wondered that when unfortunately we see people fail in the body of Christ? Have you ever said, what in the world were they thinking? How did that happen? I'll show you how it happens. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. How could that happen? Sin is not a spontaneous act but the result of a process. Perhaps Ananias desired to have a reputation like Barnabas. Perhaps he was enticed by the nickname Joseph was given by the apostles and wanted a nickname too that would make him sound important. And perhaps increase his popularity among the believers. Like the oxen and the lion fable, Ananias is starting to settle into a corner. This is why we're so encouraged in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Ananias was dragged by his own evil desires and ended up faking his spirituality to impress 
others. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. They were in the congregation of those who believed and were involved with the Holy Spirit, yet lived hypocritically. They planned this whole thing together. Their harmonious conspiracy was a hypocritical mockery of the Christian community's spirit-filled unity of sharing everything they have, which Luke is recording for Theophilus. How foolish of them. How foolish of me in my life when I've thought no one knows. No one knows about my hidden sinful behavior. God knows. And God cannot be mocked. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Galatians 6.7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Two clear warnings against hypocrisy and deceit. And in verse 5, we see how serious God takes sin in his church, which risks our unity and our witness. Lying to God and robbing him of glory puts our unity at risk and places individuals under the holy, just discipline of God. Rather than being filled, remember we talked about this last week, controlled by the Holy Spirit as Barnabas was, Peter acknowledges that Ananias had allowed himself to be influenced by Satan so that he was living according to his flesh rather than the Spirit, resulting in him lying to the Holy Spirit who is God, evidenced by him keeping some of the money he had received for the land but presenting as if he had given it all. How serious is lying? Ananias' deceitfulness amounted to lying to the ever-present Holy Spirit in him and the ever-present Holy Spirit in the church. Remember, the Spirit is not a force. He is God. And He can be grieved. We can grieve the Holy Spirit when we lie through our deceitfulness, stealing or participating in anything that is contrary to God's holy name. And when Luke records Peter saying that Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the proceeds, the verb used there actually means to pilfer or embezzle. Are you, am I, involved in any actions that are in contradiction to God's holy name? We need to be alert. Aesop's fable is not the only thing that talks about a lion. The Bible says the devil seeks to destroy our unity. He's roaming around Calvary Baptist Church. Seeking to destroy our unity through our evil desires and hypocrisy. Tempting us to act unwisely, lying to us to think that sin is no big deal. His ultimate goal is to destroy your life and divide the, our church so that we are ineffective in our witness. He comes to steal, kill, and 
destroy. While sin does not result in spiritual death for the believer, because we have eternal life, it can lead to physical death. God takes all sin seriously, including the sin of hypocrisy, which puts the unity of his family at risk. In this case, God had been belittled. Holy God, who we just sang about, had been belittled by the actions of Ananias and his church, was in essence facing a satanic assault, and as a result of his holy, just discipline, Ananias died. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Everyone was awakened. And that has been my prayer for my life and for us this morning, that God's word would awaken us this morning to the seriousness of hypocrisy in the church. And they learned that physical death can be a consequence of divine judgment. Do you remember Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus? They were consumed and died for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to what God had commanded. What about Achan, who was stoned for disobeying orders regarding handling the devoted things after entering the promised land? What about Azza, who reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled, died beside the ark for his irreverent act? It's interesting to note that the Lord judges sin very severely at the beginning of a new period in his salvation history. And as is the case with Ananias and Sapphira, in the early days of the church, he was sending a warning to his people. Even the way they buried Ananias in verse 6 indicated the people understood. He died as a result of divine judgment. The Jews did not embalm, but customarily buried the dead the same day, especially someone who died by divine judgment, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Listen to this. The first recorded burial in Christian community was that of a hypocrite. Tragic. Ironically, Ananias' name, do you know what it means? God is gracious. But he learned the hard way, God is also holy. And only three hours after her husband had been buried, unknown to Sapphira, Peter gives his wife the opportunity to come clean. Tell me, is this the price you had Ananias got for the land? Sadly, like Ananias, she thought that they could get away with their hidden sin, and she answers, yes, that is the price. And Peter, knowing that she was lying, questions her, how could you conspire with her husband? Husbands, Genesis and here, we are the spiritual head of our home. And Ananias needed to set a way better example. And by God's grace, I pray we will set a good example. Because as you go, often your wife and your family will follow. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? What does that mean? Deliberately disobeying God and seeing how far God would go before he acts in judgment. What a risky way to live. Sapphira had gone too far. 
and presuming upon God's patience. The foolishness of such blatant human presumption had to be shown as sin. And as a result, her meeting tragically ended the same way as her husband's. Second half of verse 9. Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. She shared in her husband's conspiracy and would share in his fate. Calvary Baptist Church, Calvin Kaufelt, God cannot be mocked. In truth, we have all been guilty of the sin of hypocrisy to some degree. But as soon as we recognize it, we must do what they didn't do. We must repent and ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins and he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. This couple had been living in known rebellion and sin. They had become comfortable with their hypocrisy and did not fear God. May God make us a people known for unity, demonstrated by gospel, empowered generosity, not evil hypocrisy. So what do we do? Let's each personally commit to walking according to the Spirit. And don't endanger the unity of the body of Christ. Our unity is established by God. We are to foster it. And we need to make sure we don't put that unity at risk. It was the believer's great unity in Christ that enabled the rapid spread of the gospel. We will be most effective on mission when we recognize, foster, and protect the unity we enjoy in Christ, which we have received from God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes as we close our service this morning? I want to give you the opportunity this morning that actually God is giving you. I'm just facilitating it on his behalf, but I want to give you the opportunity. If you are knowingly pretending, if you are knowing that you are exhibiting hypocrisy, you have things in your life that you know your Savior and King Jesus Christ is not pleased with, and, let, and yet you're here worshiping, but at the same time knowing this is wrong. God wants to give you the blessing of forgiveness this morning to have that weight taken off of your shoulders of trying to live two lives. It is an awful way to live. I have lived it in the past, and I am so grateful that he forgave me and through his spirit is empowering me not to ever experience the weight of living the life of hypocrisy. If you're there this morning and say, Calvin, I want God to forgive me. I confess this, I'm faking this. I want to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. By raising my hand, I confess my sin to God. Would you please pray for me? 
that I would be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ and I confess my sin of hypocrisy right now. Raise your hand so I can pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience with us. Would you forgive me for thinking that I can get away with sin because no one else knows? God, you have shown me through your word this morning, you know all things. I confess my sins to you this morning and ask you to forgive me for pretending to be something I'm not. And would you help me to become who you want me to be? Forgive me. I am so sorry. I want to live my life fully devoted to you, King Jesus. Thank you for giving me the Holy Spirit to empower me. Thank you for giving your word to guide me. And thank you for placing me in the family of God to support me. Thank you. I receive the gift of your forgiveness this morning. Father, help all of us today to realize the very precious unity we have has been given to us by you. Help us all to be contributors generously to fostering it and help us all to walk by your spirit so we do not endanger the unity that you have blessed us with so we will be effective witnesses for you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. That in unity, the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see. Church family, this morning's message from God to us serves as a reminder that even in the most spirit-filled congregations, the devil prowls around like a lion. Every gospel-preaching church will face opposition from the outside, but the story of Ananias and Sapphira is a strong warning to us of how sinful actions on the inside can create opposition, put our unity at risk, and neg negatively affect our missional impact as Christ's witnesses. Aesop's fable said, together we stand, divided we fall. I say, on mission, together we stand through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? God bless you.